everybody, everybody, when you know that death is hours away, weeks away, months away, what, what happens to people the world over? They start running marathons, they climb mountains, they raise money for people, for relational things. The reality of death brings everything into focus and the things that matter most, you start living for the most in the time that you have got left. And that in a nutshell is what Ecclesiastes does. Take the, the thing that's certain and shrink, shrink the time frame right down to the present. Imagine that it's coming because it is coming. Imagine it was soon. What would you do differently? How would you live differently? Hey guys, if you're not following Fort Capital on LinkedIn, I would. In a prior ad, I talked about our newsletter, but LinkedIn is just as good, except these are in real time. We post weekly, sometimes daily. We talk about career opportunities, information on our latest acquisitions and dispositions, updates across the Fort team, our latest real estate-focused podcast episodes, our most recent content pieces, Stay up to date with the number one fastest growing private real estate company in Texas by following Fort Capital on LinkedIn. David, welcome to the show. It is a true uh, honor and pleasure to have you on with me today. Thanks so much, Chris. Fantastic to be here. Great to be able to talk to you. I think it would be important to start with just a little bit of your background and how you, how life brought you to becoming the minister at Trinity Church out in Aberdeen. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, so... I guess your listeners listening, you probably tell I don't have an American accent. My accent's a mixture of Northern Irish uh, accent. I have a Northern Irish father and probably a little bit of Scottish uh, accent thrown in there as well. I've lived in Aberdeen in the northeast of Scotland for 20 years, nearly 20 years now, which is the longest I've ever lived in one place. Before that, I had never lived anywhere in one place for too long. I've dotted all around the place. So I I have a US passport. I'm one of you guys. I was born in Tennessee when my parents were training to be missionaries with a mission organization called MAF, Mission Aviation Fellowship. And it's a, it's a wonderful organization that flies light aircraft into remote areas, medical emergencies and all sorts of things like that. My dad's an aircraft engineer. So they were training. Uh, I came along in Tennessee and then we went to Ethiopia for one year, then Tanzania until I was eight years old and then back to Northern Ireland where I spent about 10 years before I then went back to Africa for a little bit. All of that to say, after studying in the United Kingdom, I kept doing more and more theological study and in the end ended up in Aberdeen to do a, a doctorate in historical systematic theology. And the church family that we were in was such an amazing, wonderful place to be that we basically never left. I've stayed, became the minister of the congregation and yeah, been with these people nearly 20 years, like I said. Was there a moment in your life where you remember receiving Christ? It sounds like you grew up in a family where it was prevalent, but was there, is there, is there a, a moment or a series of events or something that you draw on that, that you kind of knew this was the life for you? That's a really good question. I, I, the way I would talk about that, the, the answer to your question is yes, but I actually would say I have several moments like that. I, I think I asked in the language that we would use and understand, I think I asked Jesus into my heart about 20 times uh, growing up. I was in that kind of church tradition. That's what my mom and dad believed. They led me to Christ constantly. And I think I had several different conversion moments. The way that I would describe it now, looking back, is quite different that I think I would actually say now, I don't know when I came to faith. I, I had the, the, the amazing privilege of Christian parents who from the moment I was born showed me who the Lord Jesus is, kept pointing me to him. Were any of those moments the moments where I was genuinely converted? I don't know. Hopefully one of them at least was, but may maybe it was before that. I don't know. You know, I'm now, a, I'm now a Presbyterian minister. And so all four of my children were all baptized as babies, as infants, which, you know, that, that theology is based on a particular understanding of covenant belonging. Children are born into the covenant and doesn't make them converted Christians, but it gives them privileges and rights as covenant people. And so, yeah, the, the, the world in which I grew up in was the world of living Christian faith. I didn't always want to be a minister. I kept thinking I was going to be a school teacher and I just kept putting that off year after year until eventually um, really a good friend who I worked with said, no, no, you need to put that aside and use your gifts and 
love for Christ in a way that is shepherding his people. And that's, that's really how I've ended up doing what I'm doing. I'm really glad he told you that, um, cause I don't know if we would have ever met and the impact that you've had just in, in the book that I've read that you wrote that we'll talk about a bit, maybe more just the contents of the book. But before we do all that, I think it would be important. You and I had an, an opportunity to meet in January this year over in Dallas and spend the day together. And you gave a talk and it, I've thought about it a ton. And I think this will lead into talking about the church that you're working on, but you kind of painted a picture of what Christianity is like in Europe, and maybe you can distill it down to Scotland in particular, or you can talk broadly, versus how you see it in the United States, and maybe the comparisons and the contrast. And I remember leaving that talk, one, feeling grateful for where Christianity was in America, but really thinking, wow, I can't believe the picture that you painted in Europe. And so I thought maybe it would be good for you to kind of maybe regurgitate that or kind of give, you know, the foundation of, of how you see the two uh, similarly and differently. Sure. I mean, I know that, well, the way, the way I would put it is, is that I think it's a, it's a really common, a commonly understood fact that your founding fathers in the United States had strongly Christian beliefs, Christian principles, the gospel was there at the very beginning. And I, I would say in very many ways that both from the Reformation onwards in Europe and then the Pilgrim Fathers, the founding fathers in the United States, the gospel took root throughout Europe and throughout the United States. The preaching of the gospel, the simple, clear message that I am not king, I am not Lord of my life, but Jesus Christ is Lord, that he has lived the life we all should have lived, died the death that we deserved. He's been raised to the Father's right hand. He's now the world's universal Lord and King, whether people recognize and know him or not. That, that gospel message took root throughout Europe and throughout the United States, and in both places formed, for want of a better word, and I know this is controversial and all sorts of things that this may mean and not mean, formed Christian culture. So it led to the abolition of slavery. It led to Christian schools, Christian hospitals. It led to the concept of Christians in politics and just, fair, free society, justice, freedom, truth. Those, all those things came from the soil where the gospel had been planted and was growing. And where I'm going with this is to say that I think in the United States and the observations that I've had over the time I've been in the States for the last couple of years, that that gospel root that has led to Christian culture has continued to flourish in the United States in a way that it has died in Europe. And in the United States, you have a far, far greater heritage at the minute of Christian schools, Christian colleges, Christian ways of doing things. One of, one of my amazing observations, particularly meeting folks in Dallas, you know, private equity firms and investment companies, all the rest of it, you can tell from reading the bios on the company website that these guys are Christians. Uh, it's just, there, there's a, it, it's not a Christian company. It's just doing business the same way as everyone else is, but it's unashamedly run by Christians. And that's out there in the public square. That, that does not exist in the United Kingdom at all or, or in Europe. And the Christianizing of the culture that we used to have, Christian schools, hospitals, all the rest of it has died. So Christian education in the United Kingdom is almost, not completely, but almost non-existent. And so one of my main observations has been that in the United States, you still have the fruit of the gospel that has grown into Christian culture. And in, in Europe and in the United Kingdom and in Scotland where we are, the Christian culture has withered on the vine and has died. And there are still really good, excellent churches, but we are right back, if I can put it like this, right back to the dark ages of preaching the gospel into massive secularism, preaching the gospel into a world where the terms of the gospel actually no longer make traction sense. You have to work hard to explain to people. It's not that the gospel can't still make sense, because I think there's some recent work we've done, an English evangelist called Glenn Scrivener has written a wonderful book called The Air We Breathe, where he argues that things like freedom, compassion, justice, uh, equality, those things came from a Christian body, if you like. The body has died, but the ghost is still there. Those things still really matter in culture, all of those things. But 
they're from the Christian worldview. And in, in our world, in Europe, in Scotland, what we're trying to say to people is those things that you that really matter, they come from the heritage of the Christian faith, but it has long been forgotten. So where I am in Scotland, Scotland is the most secular country in the United Kingdom, and the city of Aberdeen, where I live, is the most secular city in Scotland. So 1% of the population Christian. So that's a very long answer to your question. But the, the thing I say to folks is that I think in the United States, you often feel like you're fighting a losing battle, you're losing your Christian culture. And it, you might be, but you are still light years ahead of where we are. Is there a moment, if, if we take it to Europe, when things began to shift? Is it recently? Is it within the last few decades? Or has this been kind of building for what might be centuries? And why? Yeah, I, I, I think you'd probably need better minds than me to answer that. To be honest, I don't, I'm not a historian. I don't know exactly. I mean, I know that there's an English author uh, called Andrew Wilson, who's just written a brand new book that I think is going to be really well received that will be of interest to you on your side of the pond as well as here. It's called Remaking the World, How 1776 Created the Post-Christian West. So, you know, the, the, the year of the signing of the Declaration of Independence, Andrew Wilson argues, was a seismic shift that has actually shaped, that year has shaped where we are today. In that book, I haven't read the book yet, but I know that in it he argues that perhaps the most significant figure is David Hume, the Enlightenment philosopher. And it may just be that somehow Hume's ideas of, you know, rationality and doing away with God, we are certainly in Scotland and in Europe, we are the unashamed children of the Enlightenment, and it has just impacted everything. We can do away with God, and that the human subject is now sufficient to come up with everything. You were just saying, you were saying when you preach the gospel in, in Aberdeen, you're often preaching it to, to folks that can't quite make sense of it. What do you mean by that, that they cannot make sense of the gospel? Like, wh where do you have to be as a, as a person or a human to where when you're hearing it, you're not making sense of it? And maybe in America, Americans can make sense of it. I mean, if you think about being in America, right, you grew up, your national anthem, you sing about God. And I suppose you could say in the, you know, you, you, you pledge allegiance to the flag in, in God we trust and so on and so on. People, your presidents and speeches by saying, God bless the United States of America. In the United Kingdom, we have God save the Queen. People sing that, but no one's thinking about God when they're singing the national. You might say, well, no one's thinking really about God in the States either. In, in the United States, God is somehow still in the language substrata of your culture. Here, when you speak about God, or Jesus. It's not increasingly now the people that we meet in our church family who come off the streets. Those words mean nothing to them. So they don't have a bank of Bible stories that they learned as a kid. Oh yeah, Jesus, he did that. But increasingly you meet people who've never even heard of him. So you think of mission work, sending folks to parts of the world that are unreached people groups. Parts of the United Kingdom are increasingly unreached people groups. And partly that's a reflection of cultural diversity and immigration. So people arriving in the United Kingdom is changing hugely the makeup of the United Kingdom, which, you know, whatever the correct policies that need to be there is a fantastic thing for the gospel. People are coming here. We don't just have to go there. But th there just isn't a, you know, it's like learning a new language. You're trying to teach people that, that there is a God who made us. You're not in charge of your life. Someone else is. He has the right to say what is good and right and true. And people are like, oh, hang on. No, that, that's, not, that's not right. I would imagine in, then being in that position, when you see somebody come to Christ, it, I don't know if the, the answer is, or what I'm trying to say is it's like a more dramatic event, but it, it has to be incredibly inspiring to see someone that might not even have known who Jesus Christ was, even as, a, as an adult, come to see Jesus. I have to imagine that's a lot of the joy in your life. Uh, absolutely. It's an amazing thing when it happens. I can think of, you know, a handful of instances over the last couple of years where that's happened. The main thing you would say about it is that even if there is a dramatic moment, even if there's a moment of decisive shift, the mess of conversion is huge because this person is now thinking in a whole new way, leaving perhaps 
or introducing difficulties into family relationships, particularly where there's things like gender and sexuality decisions that are really significantly going to change. Discipleship becomes a long-term construction project, as it is for all of us, but you see it so clearly with somebody who's just come with no Christian background whatsoever. It, the joy is often mixed with tears and the, the cost of following Christ in this kind of environment. And one more, and then I want to talk about the church a little bit, but can you just give a little more color to, you said Scotland is the most secular of all European, or at least in the UK. And then within Scotland, Aberdeen is the most secular. It's like the 1% of the 1%. I mean, you're truly, what is it like to be the 1% of the 1%? I mean, you've, you've traveled all over the, the globe. But just like, what's it like for maybe not you, but the average person that is a Christian in Aberdeen? I mean, I want to be clear that it's not like we're not, we're not living, I'm not, we're not living in North Korea or in a person, you know, we're not actively persecuted every day for our faith. But the, the, if you liken it to like a, a frog being slowly boiled to death in water that's just temperatures has just turned up slowly o on everything from questions of gender, sexuality, legality of employment for Christians. If you hold a certain view, certain beliefs about things, medical ethics that some of, I mean, our church family is made up of people in education, oil and education, oil and medicine. And the, the type of issues that Christian medics are having to take a stand on and face with courage and boldness. It's like more like death by a thousand cuts. It's not that there's one particular onslaught. You're just living in a, in a culture where the powers that be, government powers, have no deference to the idea that they are not the ultimate power. There is no sense of a higher power that they might have to answer to or that Christian people might have to answer to. The, the conception of politics and what is good is entirely natural with no sense of the transcendent. And that just filters down in terms of being like a kind of heavy weight, if you like, placed over your opposing vision of what life should be. Okay, so then you had the brilliant idea that in this 1% of the 1%, you are going to buy a church. And I crazy think idea. a crazy idea, you crazy <laughs> yeah. guy. And one of the things that struck me was crazy was you were actually showing me also projects of what's happening to all these churches. And you were sending me beautiful buildings that had been built, you know, for hundreds of years that are now one by one turning into nightclubs and entertainment and churches are, I guess they're following the way of, of kind of the 1%. They're also becoming the 1%, but you decided to buy one. Can you just tell me that story? Sure. So our church family born in 2011 was natively homeless. We began with no property at all. We rented space in a hotel ballroom for seven years. And then the opportunity to buy Aberdeen's largest traditional church building came up. We weren't, we weren't particularly looking for it, but this building from the national church came up for sale. And if you were, if you were looking at a, a church planting map of our city, like how could we be strategic? Where's the best place in our, in our city to plant a living gospel witness where there's no, no light on a Sunday or through the week in this part of time? Where would you, where would you drop a pin in the map? And this building was exactly in that place. It was, you couldn't have picked a better, a more needy location on, on lots of levels. The building is on a fault line in the city. You come out the front doors of the building, you turn left, you're into some of the city's greatest social need. You come out the doors and you turn right and you're into the city's wealth, the economic and judicial heart of the city center. The building straddles both, both areas. And then further up the road, there's huge numbers of student accommodation to so the potential to reach a diverse sector in the city of both economic deprivation and need, but also the need that there is with wealth. People often forget that, that I think rich people are as needy as poor people and often a lot harder to reach because they don't need help. They've got everything. We want to put the light of the gospel in this particular location and this building came up, came on, on the scene for us. So it was built in 1904. 
has been well loved by every congregation that has been in it ever since. But because there has been no gospel over the last decades in that church, the numbers have dwindled, it's declined, and we were able to purchase it. And to this day, Chris, I still, it's the most amazing thing that's ever happened to us as a church. And it's probably the most stupid thing I think I'll probably ever do in my lifetime. <laughs> so <laughs> there we are. Yeah. Why is it the most amazing thing that you've ever done? I think it's the most amazing thing because of the, but by rights, we shouldn't have been able to buy this building. There were a lot of things stacked against us. The, the people selling it shouldn't have wanted to sell it to us, and they did. We, at the time, we walked around it thinking, this is too big for us. Should we buy this? And then we bought it in 2018. And since then, over the five years since then, our church has grown, not, not, not necessarily massively in numbers. We were about 220 on a Sunday. We, we weren't that size when we bought this building, but we've seen growth in a way that we now think actually we could use every corner of this building. We, we will use, there's enough things happening that every part of this building will be in use. And here is an amazing thing that God has given us premises that we can actually use like this. But one of the other things that I think is part of what's so amazing about it is we, we've had a, a, a core belief in our church for several years. It's is a principle called structures tell stories that the way a thing is built and you're in real estate so you guys you, you know you you're, this is all over what what you do that the the structure of something is always telling a story you know the way the building is built tells the story of what it's for the, the white house does not look like grandma's cottage down the road because it's telling a story of greatness and grandeur we we believe our church service on a Sunday, the way the service is structured is meant to tell a story, to tell the story of the gospel. So we open with a call to worship. God calls, we respond. When we respond, we praise him. Then we confess our sins. We do that every week because we're trying to tell the same gospel story every week. And it's the same with physical buildings that the structure of the building was built to tell a story of a beautiful God and a great God. So it's the most majestic building. It's it's probably the most beautiful building in Aberdeen city centre. I think that, you know, a gallery, seats a thousand people, high roof, a beautiful organ, that the space is majestic. And it, it was built like that to tell the gospel story. And I think in a world, I don't know again what commercial real estate's like for you, but in a world of increasing, what, what, you know, if you go back to David Hume and the Enlightenment, when you lose God, when you lose transcendence, it's why you end up with 1960s brutalist minimalist architecture. There's no, the human subject has turned in on himself, itself, herself, and there's no greater story to tell. You will agree, I'm sure we just don't build buildings like we used to. And as we do that, the structure tells the story, tells the story that we think we're ultimate. And older buildings used to believe God was ultimate. So we, we feel that we have a building that has the potential to match the gospel story that we're trying to tell. That We can put the lights back on in this building and put people into it, our church family into it. We think the potential to tell our city about who God is from a building like this is, is second to none. And that's a lot of what we met over was you had bought this church and you're in the process of, of bringing this back to life. Where are you in the journey? What, what are the obstacles that you're facing? And like, what do you need to get this place open to be a light in Aberdeen, you know, to so many people? The, the, the short, simple answer, Chris, is money is, is, is what we need. We have nearly everything else. We have a fantastic professional team in place. We've reached the point of phase one beginning. So we, we tried to conceptualize the whole thing in one go, just renovating the building top to bottom in one go. And the, the numbers, particularly with after COVID, the cost of the project has doubled because of COVID and mainly the war in Ukraine. That's what's hammered us really with steel prices increasing. We weren't able to afford to do it all in one go. So we split it into two phases. Phase one, the exterior of the building, fixing the roof, putting new windows in, cleaning the granite and all external electrics. And we've got all the money for that and that's all underway. But we're in the process of trying to raise 2.3 million pounds to do the inside of the building. And uh, we have about half a million towards that. We're still trying to find the rest. And it's, it's, it's as simple as that. There's a team ready to go. If we can 
phase one will run through till April 2024. And then we just have to see where we are, whether we have to pause again or whether we're able to keep moving into phase two. If somebody here were listening and, and interested in learning more about it, how would they find how to know, know more about the church, maybe how to give, just maybe get more involved in one way or the other? Well, thank you. Yeah, the, the two, two main ways you could go to our church website, trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Trinityaberdeen.org.uk has a section on it on the building project, clear information about how to give both UK and United States. We also have a, a Trinity YouTube channel. If you just look up Trinity Church Aberdeen on YouTube, and that's probably the main place I would direct people to. We have two videos on there. One's a 10 minutes film telling the story of our building and telling the story of why we think this is worth doing. You, you'll see exactly what you mentioned, some of the stunning examples of buildings that have become pubs and clubs. And here's this one building that we're trying to keep as it was always meant to be as a church building. But we've also got on there just a one minute, that, that's 10 minute film, but then we've got a one minute 30 film that is just showing the work is beginning. That's the exciting one for me that's saying it is actually happening. So if someone actually wanted to get a feel for the building and you know, if you feel you, you, you can't quite believe me that this building really is amazing. If you go to YouTube and take the time to watch the story, I think you'll see why it's captured, captured our hearts so much. This is a dumb question. This is coming straight from an American. I'm going to be in Ireland next August. How far am I away from the church? Whereabouts in Ireland are you going to? That's an even better question. I just got, <laughs> I heard my wife and I are planning a trip for a buddy's birthday and I haven't actually looked at the uh, invitation, but I will be out there. Well, let me give you an, an answer for an American then that is, <laughs> you're just next door. You just, you just pop across to us. Your, your conception of distance is so vast that uh, you could be in Aberdeen, but wherever, I mean, genuinely, wherever you are, let's, you're most likely to be flying into Dublin or into Belfast. You're, you're an hour from Aberdeen. Okay. So, I'm coming come next on, August. Come and do it. You must do. I have a funny story. I, I was, I went to Asia to Thailand with my wife before we had kids like 10 years ago and we had 10 days to do it. And so I called the travel agent and they said, well, where do you want to go? And I said, oh, I'd love to go to Japan. I'd love to go to Singapore. I'd love to go to Thailand. And we have to make all this work in 10 days. And she emailed me back and she said, sir, you realize most of these flights are 12 to 14 hour flights. <laughs> and in my head, I was thinking I was flying from Texas to New York, maybe to, so I need to get my, my geography a little bit better, but. Yeah, you're big, well, you're big flights to Ireland, but honestly, once you get to Ireland, you're you're right next door. Everything's every. You'll be amazed how small everything is once you once you get there. All right, I want to talk a little bit about how we found each other, which was a book that you wrote called "Living Life Backwards" or "Living Life Backward," and it was really a book about the story of Ecclesiastes. And if anybody listening to this hasn't read that, it's it's sobering but also life giving. And so I thought we could go back and forth on kind of what all that means. And, and I thought I would just lead it out with, how would you describe the book of Ecclesiastes? So I would say the key thing you need to know about Ecclesiastes, if you open a Bible and you find a book of Ecclesiastes, you need to know that it's a subset of a certain type of literature within the Bible. It's wi wisdom literature. And when you locate it with its cousins, or its brothers and sisters in the Bible, it helps you make sense of it. So the, the, the wisdom literature in the Bible is wise people who love God and who believe in the God of the Bible, looking at the world and telling you what they see in the light of knowing him and loving him. So there are the other wisdom literature in the Bible is the book of Proverbs and the book of Job, famously, you know, a well-known book because of the suffering that Job experienced. The, the best description I ever heard is that somebody said that Proverbs is about the perception of order in the world. God created this to work in this way and that to work in that way. There is an order to the world. Proverbs is all about that. Being wise is knowing what the order of the world is. Job is about the hiddenness of order. Something terrible happens to Job and he can't understand it and he never really gets an answer to it. But God tells him, I know what the order is to everything, but you're going to have to trust me. And it, in that context, Ecclesiastes, you've got the perception of order, the hiddenness of order. Ecclesiastes is about the confusion of order, that this world has been built to work in a certain way. And yet 
oh, it's not, it's not doing what I thought it would do. I've done all this working and I'm still not happy. What, how does that work? And that the, the writer of Ecclesiastes is perplexed a lot of the time, scratching his head about how do I make sense of life? And so Ecclesiastes is a book, if, if anybody listening or watching has ever wondered how does life make sense and thinks, well, I'm not interested in the Bible because everything's neat and cut and dried, black and white, open and read Ecclesiastes. And there is your angst on the page for you in the Bible of all places. And another, another thing I'd say about how you would describe the book of Ecclesiastes is, and again, I think it's a, it's, it's an, uh, it's an attraction to the Bible. If you've ever thought of the Bible in a monochrome way, think of it like this. If you're going to write a book that says life is perplexing and bewildering, and life often slips through our fingers, just as you think you've got hold of it, it disappears. Wouldn't it be an amazing skill to communicate that message by writing a book that leaves you scratching your head and the book itself slips through your fingers? The Ecclesiastes is a book, I think, where the form of the book mirrors the content of the book. It, it's, it's a genius piece of writing that I'm going to show you that life leaves you scratching your head by giving you a book that leaves you scratching your head. <laughs> Okay, so if I say to you, which is a line in the book, life in God's world is a gift, not a gain. What does that mean? So I think, I think what Ecclesiastes does is it looks at human people. There's a tradition that King Solomon wrote the book. He may have done. We don't know for sure. I think it's very likely he did. There's a good case that he did do that. But whoever it was wrote the book after a lifetime of looking at the world and realizing that the things that human beings try to hold on to and to stuff in our pockets to make us happy, successful, healthy, wealthy, our pockets aren't big enough that the more we stuff into them, the more we want. And sometimes we find ourselves with more than our hands ever thought we'd hold and we're still left wondering, why am I empty on the inside? And so the message of the book is that life is not about gain. It's not about how much stuff you can get and accumulate and hold and own and achieve and do. But rather, life is about realizing that the, the very world we live in and the things God has given us to do it are all a gift. It's undeserved. So the businessman thinks, how much money have I made today and where's my business going? But Ecclesiastes says, have you stopped? to realize that the very fact today you have breath in your body is undeserved, lavish gift. And have you thanked God for it? And the meal that you had at breakfast with your wife and your kids, was that one of the most stunning things that's ever happened to you? Or did you just take it for granted and move on into the day? And Ecclesiastes is a kind of, to put it in tech terms, it's a kind of slow motion book, slow down, stop, reflect on what God's given you. And, and some, some of that comes from this idea of order. Again, you know, perception of order, hiddenness of order, confusion of order. The order that God has put into the world, Christians believe, is that we were meant to work, we were meant to rest, we were meant to eat and drink and enjoy relationship. That's what God gave Adam and Eve in the garden to do. Love each other, love the world, tend the world, turn the world into a garden like Eden is a garden and relate well to me and to each other. And that's life. That's all there is. That's what creatures should do. And Ecclesiastes says, yeah, but what we've done is taken all that and said, that's a good starter for 10, but now what else can I achieve? And Ecclesiastes says, the more you go down that road, the more pain there's going to be ahead of you. All right. I got to keep going on this. This is for me and anybody else that, that cares. But Another line is, all are from dust, and to dust all return. And then there's the constant, you kind of say, life is but a vapor. And, and we're not going to be really remembered when we're gone. There's only very few people that remember us. And once they're gone, we, we kind of disappear with the world. It's a really happy book, isn't it? It's really <laughs> cheerful. <laughs> but we're going to get there because there's, there, it gives you life. I and mean, I think you've already started on that path, but, but I'll work the conversation there. Why should I be in business and why should I care about my business's success and why should I have any care about my business knowing that 
nothing's really going to matter in the long run. I'm just a speck of dust when it's all said and done. So that that's such a good question, Chris, because some people confuse the message of Ecclesiastes with the kind of nihilist epi, you know, epigram of eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. Ecclesiastes is very close to that. Ecclesiastes says eat, drink, eat, drink, for tomorrow you will die. But what's different about it is it doesn't say, and therefore nothing matters. Ecclesiastes' message is eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you might die, and after that there is judgment. Ecclesiastes has a really strong sense that there is a good God in heaven who will bring everything to order and everything to account. And what what I think should give the Christian businessman in the same way as the Christian pastor and the Christian studio tech guy or the, you know, whoever, whatever it is we're doing, what should give our temporal moments meaning is not just the temporal moment itself, but the reality of judgment one day I will give an account to God for what I've done. And Ecclesiastes says, one of the things we will give an account to God for is, have you enjoyed the world that I gave you? So, I mean, I know that, I know some of the concepts here are so big and hard to get across. Hopefully they come out in the book in different ways. For the Christian businessman, I think Ecclesiastes says, if you are in business to be known as the biggest dog in town, and the greatest success in your field that there's ever been, and for people to remember you for all time. Well, you you might get there, but very, very few people actually do. And even the ones who do, do you really remember them? A hundred years later, 200 years later, you, you have your time on the stage, you are here and you're gone. And the point of what you're doing is not to try and achieve that legacy for yourself. You are a creature. And the only one who deserves to live forever is God himself. The point of all our work is meant to be, Ecclesiastes says, is meant to be for relationship. So there is a picture of a businessman in Ecclesiastes chapter four. You meet the top dog in town and he's earned everything. He's won all the prizes. He's got all the accolades. He's got all the money. But Ecclesiastes says, here's the thing about him. He's sitting on his own in the restaurant. There is no, no one with him. And here's the other thing about him, that no one, it's not just that he's on his own, it's that no one wants to be with him and he doesn't want anyone to be with him either. He has taken God's good gifts and used it to inflate himself and his own empire. And he has cut himself off from everyone and everything. And this is not just because I'm trying to raise money for a building project, okay? I think this is (laughs) genuinely the message of Ecclesiastes. And I say this in the book way before we had a building project. The point of business is human flourishing on a grand scale, which means give. If you want to be a happy Christian businessman, or I would say you want to be a happy businessman or woman, period, the point of it all is to give give big, not to hold, that the the more you give away, the greater richness life has, because you realize this stuff isn't mine. This is God's. And what, what, I mean, one of, one of the illustrations I use a lot is, there's a book in the Bible, Ro- Romans, Romans chapter, and you're going to have to stop me, Chris, if this is going on. Keep I feel going. like I'm going in, I'm going no. into sermon. Keep I'm, going. I'm going into Preach. sermon mode. Romans chapter 11, describing God says, for him and from him and to him are all things. Who has ever given God a gift that he might repay him? Okay, who, who's, who has ever, who is ever capable of repaying God in any way? So imagine, I think, I think you maybe heard me say this in, in, in Dallas. Imagine the world's richest man. He's a trillionaire, whatever it is. He, so much money, he can't count it. And he becomes a Christian. And he learns about gospel giving and he thinks, I'm going to be radically generous. I'm going to give all of this away. So he gives nearly every dollar away to Christian causes, to every world mission all over the world gets millions. Ministries transformed, the world over, the gospel is growing, the kingdom is spreading through this one man's generosity. What has he given to God? Romans 11 says nothing, absolutely nothing, because it was all God's anyway. It's all his. So we, we are like when you're, you know, we, we, I have four kids, a littlest at home, little girl, 
amazingly spots mum's birthday coming up. You know, the boys are couldn't care less. The daughter spots mum's birthday coming up. Dad, can I buy mum something for her birthday? And she's four. She's got no money. So I give her mine and mum's money to buy mum something for her birthday. She takes five pounds out of mum's purse to go and buy mum a present for her birthday. And mum knows it and is not thinking how awful that's not your, that was my money, it's not yours. It's what a parent does. Here's what I have, I give you and the love that comes back is priceless. God is like that with us. So your business, every business, it's all God's given to you. It's not actually yours. And Ecclesiastes is just a book that says, you know, when you know that, it is astonishingly liberating. You can give and give and you're not thinking I need all this stuff. Does, I don't know. Does that make sense at it all? Does that come sense. out the right way? It makes sense. I mean, and it makes a lot of sense because it's often the absolute opposite of what you hear all the time. So it, yeah, it makes sense. It's not the easiest pill to swallow when the world, when you when every waking moment in most people's lives, you just aren't getting this dose of wisdom constantly. But yeah, it makes total sense. I remember you talking about the trillionaire and I remember at the end you saying he's done absolutely, he's given God absolutely nothing. I mean, it's important to be clear in that is that of course, of course he is giving God and what he's done. Let's in that example, it's amazing. What he's done is brilliant, but he's the correct phrase I think is he's not repaying God. You know, it's, it's all God's anyway. Okay, then you then go on to say, or Ecclesiastes goes on to say, if you really want to enjoy life, it's something like death can radically enable us to enjoy life. So I think a lot of people are maybe scared to die or death is not something, one, we really want to think about. And and while you're younger, I, I think probably more, you don't even really consider, it's almost like this won't happen to me, or you, or you go about your days as if death is not going to happen to me. Obviously, the older you make it through this life, it probably becomes something you think about more. But maybe we can just start with why do we not really consider it? And then maybe finish that on why does considering death or embracing death actually bring joy to our life or should bring joy to our life? Yeah, thank you. It's, those are great questions. Why do we not actually, I mean, why do we not actually consider death? I suppose we're so experience-based, aren't we? We, Unless we've experienced something, we don't know what it is or how to think about it. And we don't often think about things we haven't experienced. If you're alive, you haven't experienced death. So death is something that happens to other people. That's, that's at the kind of just basic observational level. I think at the deeper level, there's a profound fear. Death is the unknown. We, we know about horrible deaths. We know about the pain of death and losing family members and close friends. Death is so awful, such an, an offense and an, an affront to us that we drown it out and we push it away. We don't, we don't want to think about something so terrible. In chapter one of the book, I call chapter one, let's pretend. And it's, it's the idea that the way that we do the, the way that we do life as modern people, pre-moderns didn't do this before the enlightenment, but the way we do life as modern people is based on let's pretend that death is never coming. Death is not happening to us. It'll happen to someone else, but not to me. Yeah. And, and, what, what you had you had a second part to your question, which was why does once we at whatever point you are in your life come to grips with mortality or death, it actually could bring joy to your life? Yeah, so that I think gets to the heart of the genius of Ecclesiastes and why Ecclesiastes is not actually the depressing book some people think it is. So what Ecclesiastes does, okay, it's, it says right. Let's just stop for a minute and think. Your life today. What is the only thing that is certain? There is only one certainty about your life, and that is that one day you will die. It's true, isn't it? If you think about it, that's what Ecclesiastes says. The same end overtakes all, rich, young, poor, righteous, unrighteous. The same end is coming to them all. That There is actually nothing else certain about your life. So I'm sitting here in a studio with a good friend of mine, and in, when this is over, I'll get in the car and drive home. That's my plan. But Will that happen? I hope so. But we don't know, do we? You, the only thing you can know is that one day you will die. And Ecclesiastes just takes long enough to stop and think about that and say, huh, 
well, if that's true, what should I then do with my life and how should I then live? And, and it, what Ecclesiastes does is it shrinks the, the distance that exists between the where we are now and the one thing that is actually going to happen one day that we will die. Ecclesiastes is a book to shrink that distance right down into the present. So Ecclesiastes is the book in the Bible that says, now, now that you've got your head around that fact that one day you will die, imagine that that certain death was the end of this week. Okay, so I'm recording this on a, what are we, Wednesday afternoon. Imagine that on Friday, you know for sure you will die. What will you now do the rest of Wednesday, the rest of Thursday, up until Friday? Okay, I think the Christian businessman says, well, actually, I'm, I'm running a good company, so I'm going to still keep making money. But all of a sudden, money does not become the end in itself, does it? All of a sudden, you think, I've got 48 hours left. What am I going to do with my money that will bless my family, as many people as possible. How can I put as many good things in place as possible? Everybody, everybody, when you know that death is hours away, weeks away, months away, what, what happens to people the world over? They start running marathons, they climb mountains, they raise money for people, for relational things. The reality of death brings everything into focus and the things that matter most, you start living for the most in the time that you have got left. And that in a nutshell is what Ecclesiastes does. Take the, the thing that's certain and shrink, shrink the time frame right down to the present. Imagine that it's coming because it is coming. Imagine it was soon. What would you do differently? How would you live differently? So chapter seven of Ecclesiastes, here's one of the most stunning verses in the whole book. A good name is better than perfume. Okay. Like a proverb, but it makes sense reputation is everything and the effect of a good reputation, like a nice smell in the room. A good name is better than perfume and the day of death better than the day of birth. Now, as it happens, I've actually just been to visit a couple in church who've had a new baby today, came a couple of hours ago in the maternity ward and first baby, first child. I mean, they're, they're clueless. They are so, they're on cloud nine. They have no idea how knackered they're about to be in a couple of weeks. You know, they're just holding this precious bundle and their hearts are bursting with joy. It's the most, one of the most beautiful things I get to do to pray with them and hold this little baby in, in, in my arms. How on earth is the day of death better than what I've just witnessed? And Ecclesiastes says, here's, here's how, because I held that little baby girl in my arms, what can I say about her? Actually nothing. I mean, I said, she looks like you, John, you know, she's got your hair and he, he gets his phone out and his mom had sent him a picture of him as a baby. And true enough, she's identical. Like that, that's who she looks like. But what else is there to say, say about her? Nothing. She hasn't done anything. She's just here and she's loved more than life itself, but she's, she's done nothing. But Ecclesiastes says one day, 60, 70, 80 years, God willing from now, that little baby will be in a coffin, in a crematorium, in a church, and it will be her funeral. And in that moment, what will they say about her? What will people say about her life? One day that will be me. One day that will be you, everybody listening. When that moment comes, what will be said about us? So the next verse, after saying the day of death is better than the day of birth, the next verse is, it is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living should lay it to heart. You, you get more wisdom in the crematorium than you get in the pub at night. Better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting, because in the crematorium, you sit and look at a box and you realize one day that will be me. And when it's me, what will my life have amounted to? And that's why it's good to sit there in the crematorium. It is the fool who says, this is awful. I need to get back to the pub. I need to get out in the evening, blank this out. Ecclesiastes says that's foolish. That's why this is wisdom literature, because that is coming to you. So I hope you, I know you understand that you've read the book and you like the book. I hope for people listening for the first time, some of it's making a bit of sense that this is why Ecclesiastes is not a depressing book. It's dealing with a depressing topic, death, but if you've got to blank it out and pretend that doesn't apply to you, well, one day you're in for a shock and the people who love you are in for a shock. But if you actually accept it and you 
meet your death in advance, well in advance of your death. Oh, the blessings that can flow from that, the, the type of person you can become who lives fully is, is amazing. And that was my next question, which you've touched on and you kind of started there, even when you described having breakfast with your kids this morning is like one of the most amazing things you've done rather than just kind of skipping past it. But something that some of the folks from um, Twitter wanted to know and myself is just like, maybe you can relate it to, to you or just like practical things of how does, how does your life begin to change once you do kind of let this soak in and, 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 you know, maybe I would start with what you already said, which is enjoying everything to a different degree than we currently think of it. But how, how do you think of what are some practical steps to take? Yeah, I mean, I, it's a great question because it's the payoff, isn't it? We all want to know what difference does it make. And I, I do want to commend the book of Ecclesiastes to everybody listening. Nothing has changed my life, I think, as much as Ecclesiastes. Probably a set of sermons that I preached have had as little impact as sermons on Ecclesiastes, because this is where we all live in this world. And Ecclesiastes has the potential to free your grip on the things of this world and to let you hold things lightly. It's got, Ecclesiastes has helped me enjoy my glass of wine more fully, it's helped me enjoy my wife more completely, accepting that, realizing that, that God has given me this gift of this woman. And what, what, I mean, let's be honest, what happens in all long-term relationships, you just take each other for granted. Like, and, and men in particular, I think we do that, don't we? But we all do it. You, you know, the old saying, you don't realize what you've got until you lose it. Why, why is that a human phenomenon? It just is, isn't it? And Ecclesiastes is slow down, take the time to enjoy those things. Years ago, when, when I just finished preaching on Ecclesiastes and this material was really taking root in my heart, I was going off to speak somewhere for a weekend and we'd uh, X number of children, you know, crawling around the floor. And my wife was doing all the work that weekend and I'm going off to speak for a weekend. And so I'm going out the door and she says, and you know, we're a really cheery, happy couple. She says, don't you dare die. You know, make sure you come back, please. And I said to her, though, I said, well, if I die, I'm ready. And Ecclesiastes had had that effect on me. I, I am, and it's still true today. I'm 47, but I'm ready to die. I don't have, so I'm doing this building project, right? And I want to see it done. And I think it's amazing. And I think it matters. And it does not matter if I don't get to do it. God's in charge. God rules the world, not me. And, you know, I don't know if you know this, but, you know, you'll know the world you're in is cutthroat and ambitious, but Christian pastors can be some of the most ambitious people on earth. And ambition takes, even if you're not ambitious, you can be too busy and overworked and, you know, all the rest of it. And it's because Christian ministry has its own form of trying to leave a legacy behind. But it, it's amazingly liberating as a pastor to think, I don't have to be, I'm not my people's Messiah. That, that's idolatry and it harms them when I give them more of me instead of more of Christ. I just have to be faithful every day. Maybe this church will get done. Maybe it won't. And if it doesn't, God's on the throne. The world will not end. So, you know, there's a kind of, I don't know if that's making sense. It's a kind of freedom to accept that God rules the world, not me. I am a creature and I'm here. I'm like a breath. That That's what meaningless means in Ecclesiastes. It, meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. It's not a the word Havel, the Hebrew word, it's not a philosophy student, first year at university coming home and telling his parents, you know, done a bit of Kant and Hume and everything's meaningless. It's not that. It's the word meaningless is better translated as breath, vapor, mist, mist, everything is a mist. And it, once you really believe that about yourself, man, you stop worrying about a lot of things and start focusing on the good things God has given you and the things that matter. When you said I'm not my the, the people of the church's Messiah, and then you kind of painted the picture where there there are churches or individuals that maybe whether they intended to be or they didn't intend to be kind of end up in that role, how do you not become the Messiah? Is it just by your walk and your actions? Is it how you talk to people? How how do you avoid becoming the Messiah of your church if there's a pastor listening to this, or really even not a pastor? Maybe you're the leader of a Bible study, or 
you're the leader of something where people are looking to you and you are not the Messiah or you're not trying to be? It's a very good, it's a very good question. And, and the irony is probably some of my, I was going to say some of my church family will be listening to this thing, you know, that's interesting. Um, or, or my wife, that's the main one, you know, you spend your wife here. She's like, ah, yeah. I remember preaching years ago on a Sunday and look, I try not to look at my wife and preach, but I remember I said something and I looked across at her and she was sitting down with her Bible and I saw her, she just went, hmm. you know, that little raise of the eyebrow. Oh yeah, we're, we're going to talk about that over lunch, aren't we? I think it, what it practically looks like is saying no to people and not being Stanley Harawas, an American theologian, he has a phrase that talks about a, a pastor who becomes a quivering mass of availability, quivering wreck of availability. You know, the ability not being your people's messiah means showing them that your your natural family needs to come first sometimes, not your church family, that you're not always working, that you have a day off, you take holidays, that I don't know, I'd probably need to think about that a little bit more. Because when I think of Jesus, even in the Bible, he wasn't available yeah. to everybody. Exactly. And yeah. I read something the other day that said, if Jesus was on earth today with 7 billion people and, and, and all the media and iPhones we have, everybody would know he was here. And so even if he was here, the opportunity for you to probably ever get to see him anyway is so limited if we were living within kind of earthly realm. And I thought about that because I've thought, oh, if Jesus was here I would just go fly and see him. It's like that, that probably isn't practical. And so as I think about what you just said with that not being available, I think a lot of times people can take that in the context of, oh, this person's kind of a jerk or they're just not, you know, available to me. But when I, when I think of Jesus, I think in reading in the Bible, I mean, he was away praying by himself for a lot of the time. He, he was not available to everybody. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I remember reading as well years ago in Eugene Peterson, who was a well-known pastor in the States, he had a, has a, an autobiography called The Pastor. He tells about the time when his own ministry, in his words, became infected with what he calls the messianic virus. He was trying to do too many things. He was trying to be everything to his people in every possible way. And he said what helped him was realizing that his job as a pastor in every encounter was people is to think to himself and with them, what is God doing in your life right now? Rather than what might I be able to help you with? And I think when the pastor builds a bit of distance or not distance, put, puts God in between himself and the people is really helpful. That I, yes, I'm, you know, you wanted to meet for coffee and coming around for coffee, fine. But you might just want to have wanted me for the hour in the coffee but the best that I can give you is not me. It is God. Where, where are you with God right now? So a pastor's job is to, I think, constantly keep Christ in front of people. And you're, you're giving people Christ, not yourself. And you, you give people Christ through the medium of yourself, yes. But w when you have that fixed, it's a lot easier to say, you don't need me. And I my ministry doesn't depend on me being with you right now today in this moment, something like that, I think. I want to bring it home on a topic that's important to me, but I think it's important to you too. We both have young kids. I have a six-year-old, a four-year-old, and a one-year-old. It would be weird to me to walk in and tell my six-year-old, the one thing that's certain is you're going to die. They're at a period of their life where they're just starting to you know, see the world and they're excited and they're coming into their own. And so the question is really, as someone who has probably understood the book as maybe well as anybody on this planet, what are ways that you can relay those messages to kids without not demoralizing them? But I just can't imagine telling my six-year-old, you know, you're going to die one day and you, you, it's easier to maybe talk to an adult about that. How do you think about it in the realm of kids? Yeah, that's so important because, and I've thought about this a lot actually recently, it's so important because Ecclesiastes is a book for young people. That chapter 12, the famous verse, remember your creator in the days of your youth. It's, you know, if that is as clear as day, isn't it? Who this is aimed at. And I think parts of the Bible are like that. I think parts of the Bible are age specific. You get it in the epistles often, older men, younger men, women are addressed. Parts of the Bible are gender specific. I think Proverbs is a book for boys. It's a father speaking to young men about 
the, the wrong type of money and the wrong type of sex. I think Song of Songs is a book for women, woman to woman about not awakening love. doesn't mean all the both other genders shouldn't read the books, but it's, it, it is really specific at times. And Ecclesiastes, this is what I've wrestled with. Here is a book for young people, but I cannot get this message across to young people. Um, because there's a man called William Hazlitt who said that to be young is to feel immortal. It is the essence of youth that you feel you're going to live forever. And I've wrestled with that loads. How do I get my kids to know what I now know about how fleeting life is? My, my eldest son was, is, is a really excellent soccer player. He played at a high level. And I remember one day dropping him off for training. And, you know, I'm wrestling with all this stuff. And my main thing to my son is, look, Archie, just, you've got, I parked the car as he's sitting beside me, about to run off. I say, you just enjoy this, love every minute of it. Just grab it with both hands. And I think I was so earnest. I was like this, and I, I looked, I looked right and he'd gone. He wasn't even in the car. He was like, he was like, oh, another, another sermon from dad. I'm not, I'm off. Just going to, play. and he's like, I'm just going to play football, whatever, old man, you know? So well, that's a long way of saying, here's, here's what I think. I think you're entirely right, Chris, that to, to, if to be young is to feel immortal at a certain age, thinking about death in the way that you and I've talked about here today is really upsetting for a child. And I don't think that's the way to do it. I don't think the message of Ecclesiastes is sit your small child down and terrify them with the fact that they're going to die. They're not built yet to understand that. And here, here's the best that I can come up with, that the best way to help our kids understand this is for you and me as dads to be dads who understand it. So will your kids grow up to say, dad was a really successful businessman, but we don't know him and we never spent time with him? Or yeah, dad was great at what he did, but he put mum first and he put us first and we got all of him as well as somehow he made it, you know, fantastic job with his business. Will my kids say, Church came first, Trinity family first, Gibson family second, and all he, and, and and at the same time, all he ever did was talk about that old church building because that's what they make fun of me for for talking about wood and windows and all sorts of all these architectural things that they just roll their eyes at. When it comes to our kids, what we want as parents is what can I teach them? Give me a tip, a book, uh, a way of communicating this information, and that is easier than the really hard task of being the kind of person that really understands this material and lives it out. And if I am the kind of dad that says to my kids, I can go under a bus tomorrow and Trinity Church will be just fine, but I want you to know the Lord Jesus the way that I do and your mum does with all my heart. That's harder, isn't it? But that's the real challenge, I think, to we will teach our kids the message of Ecclesiastes by living the message of Ecclesiastes. Do they see that I am radically generous or do they see me give lip service to that, but actually build, you know, my securities in the vault or is my, am I open-handedly giving and giving in a way that they're amazed at? And am I treasuring the good things in life or am I left as a child to get on with it myself because dad's too busy working. Those are the kind of ways to do it, I think. David, I think that's a perfect way to end. Um, I say all this thinking right now, my kids are going to watch this and <laughs> I'm really in for it. <laughs> well, then I'll, ask really you, in for it. <laughs> then I'll ask you one more question. And this isn't necessarily in Ecclesiastes, but it's something that I think about a lot. I believe it's in Mark. And I think it's in Matthew as well, but I know it's in Mark where they basically just talk about sometimes the hardest people for you to reach are the people closest to you. And you kind of just made that joke about my kids listening. And there's oftentimes on this podcast, I'll say something and then I'll walk out and be like, oh, if only my kids are, thank God they're young. Why is it that sometimes the hardest people to reach are in your own backyard? I I, I wonder, I mean, I again, like everything I need to probably my best answer will come when I'm driving home yep. half an hour. <laughs> I, I, it must be something to do, mustn't it, with the, the people closest to, you know, Andy Crouch has a lovely book called The TechWise Family. And he says that the gift of the family is that our families see us 
for the fools that we are. Like all pretense is dying. You're not playing a role anymore. You're, you know, your home warts and all, and your family see it when you're tired and your wife knows when you're irritated. And our families see the real us and they see the sin that's really there. And that creates friction and barriers. And we, we retreat from that into other forms of you know, keeping each other at distance. I don't know. There's just something about that the family is God's greatest mechanism for sanctification, isn't it? It's what marriage is for. The point of marriage is for us to learn the gospel that even though we were this ugly, Christ loved us and died for us. And that the fa- the family asks that of us in a way, the family asks for sacrificial love in a way that no other setting really does ask. David. This was a great way. I'm just getting my day started. Your days, you're heading to dinner, but this was fantastic. And I, I really, really appreciate your time today. Real pleasure. I've really, really enjoyed talking to you, Chris. It's been really fantastic. Thanks so much for having me. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Fort Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform or hop on over to YouTube to watch full video episodes if that's what you prefer. For more information, you can check out thefortpod.com. 